In the great Protestant universities of Germany are to be found wonderful advantages for learned research, a mighty spirit of research, and many and great merits. Germans, compared to the Hollanders, the British, and even the French, are a poor nation, and both munificent salaries and large incomes are rare among them, so that the endowments and emoluments of their profession, of their professorships, are munificent when viewed in relation to habits of the people, although very moderate when measured by the British standard. The organization of their universities is wise and liberal, the professorships amazingly numerous, and the division of labor accordingly minute. This partition of branches of instruction, with the cheapness of living and books, and the scale of the libraries, enable scholars to pursue the different departments of literature to their extreme ramifications with a nicety unknown in any other country. Hence, in German universities are found men devoting their whole lives to examining and teaching departments which, in other countries, are either not touched or treated as a brief appendage to some other branch. Studi studious effort is, moreover, honored, and literary success valued by the people and the governments. The appointing power is, no doubt, usually employed with great impartiality and wisdom to elevate men of real diligence and learning to distinguished chairs. The genius of the German Protestant people also contributes in a splendid way to the fruitfulness of this vast literary husbandry. Intensely devoted to freedom of speculative thought, thorough, laborious, patient in temperament, they are, they are perhaps the more independent and adventurous in literary inquiry because they have been allowed so little liberty of political action. This part of Germany is still the Protestant nation, proud of the right of free inquiry and zealous to exercise it everywhere they are allowed. In no country of Christendom higher education so prominent and so honored, and nowhere is the trade of scholarship so completely organized or so persistently plied. Hence it would be both incorrect and ungrateful to deny the indebtedness of the civilized world to German scholarship. In no department of human learning have the Germans been laggards. In some they have laid scholars under peculiar obligations. In philology, the editing of the classics and patristic writings, the illustration of the scripture text, compilation of accurate lexicons and critical grammars of all tongues which are taught in civilized countries, they have long taken the lead. And they are now coming to the forefront in the more realistic sciences of law, medicine, chemistry, which men used to consider as the prerogative of the more practical Britain and Gaul. But in no department have the Germans attracted so much attention as in theology. Men speak of German theology sometimes with fear, sometimes with admiration, but often as something single and unique and separated from the other schools of theology by uniform traits. Whereas there are many German theologies, at least as there are British or American, differing as wildly from each other in merit and opinions. There is indeed so much of a pretext for speaking of German theology as a single system by itself that most of the writers of that nation and of all the various schools have a few common traits. 
One of these is the use of a peculiar philosophic nomenclature, made prevalent among them by the long ascendancy of one or another phase of idealism. Another may be said to be a certain boldness of criticism in dealing with inspired declarations, which, to the orthodox apprehension of the Reformed, savors, savors of a degree of license. The German theology is yet as many-sided as that of Britain or America, and there are as wide differences between the good and the bad. Of some of their expositors and dogmatic theologians, it is hard to utter praise too high. But in settling the weight to be attached by English-speaking Christians to the theological admissions of the German press, there are some very plain facts which must be considered. First, in German Protestantism, Lutheranism is now virtually dominant. One sufficient cause of this result is the ascendancy of Prussia and her persistent policy of unifying her church state. The University of Marburg, a small one, is now the only distinctly reformed or Presbyterian institution left in Germany. It is not asserted that all reformed divines are excluded from all the rest, but the general rule is that the Lutherans are now preferred and are in the ascendant. Now, as students well know, Lutheran theology is no longer that of Martin Luther, as to the distinctive points of Calvinism. In these doctrines, the most evangelical and orthodox teaching one hears in Germany is as hostile and as condemnatory as that as we are wont to hear at home from Wesleyans and Arminians. But this fact is almost trivial when compared to another vis-a-vis -vis the present Lutheranism, when not rationalistic, is sacramentarian. The most devout, staunchest asserters of inspiration, like Ludart and Leipzig, teach a phase of baptismal regeneration and the real corporeal presence of the supper. The fruits of this teaching there, as everywhere else, are evil. Second, the Protestant churches of Germany are state establishments, and such are their universities with their theological departments. The theory of this relation to the state is rigorously Erastian. Well known in history that at the Reformation, the German princes usurped the power of dictating to their subjects a religion, with a tyranny at least equal to that of the popes. The motto of treaties and laws was Caius Regio, Eius Religio. The ruler of the land ruled the religion of the land. The people of an unfortunate state had to change their faith and worship backwards and forwards, reformed to the Lutheran, and from either to the Popish, as the sword or interests or lusts of the prince dictated. Nor is the church in Germany less helpless under the imperious Erastianism today. Of spiritual church government there is simply none. The church courts are either absolute ciphers, or they, or they are but names for what are, really, bureaus of state administration, as little reflecting a spiritual power as a bureau of police or street paving. Prostration of the church power under the secular, secular rule notable illustration as late as 1875-76, to 76, when the foul state of the marriage and divorce laws of Prussia, which Bunsen has cited as one of two grand blots on the Protestant world, provoked a protest from Lutheran pastors. The answer was an imperious edict from Bismarck, suppressing their protest, commanding them to solemnize the adulterous unions, and ordering them to expurgate expurgate 
the church liturgy as so so as utterly to suppress its implied disappropriation of the anti-christian law and usage in england where nominally protestant but erastian church is established by law the healthy vitality of the national conscience is expressed in dissent the dissenting churches embody nearly or quite half the population and give a place of refuge to honest and manly christians in Germany, dissent is so insignificant as to be practically nil. Pressure exists in full force. There is not enough vitality to evoke this form of remonstrance. Hence, with this state subjugation of the church and doctrine of baptismal regeneration, every, every German Protestant child is baptized in infancy and is confirmed at the approach of puberty before it is betrothed or conscripted. All are full, full members of the church. All have been to their first communion. There's no church discipline, however he may become infidel, atheist, adulterer, or drunkard. Every member of the church is, so far as ecclesiastical title goes, eligible to a theological professorship. The appointing power to theological chairs is virtually the state. There's no need whatever that a man be ordained to the ministry that he have a saving personal knowledge of the gospel or make any profession of it. Rather, it is necessary that he attain the proper academic degree, defend his thesis theologica in the Latin disputation, get himself much talked of as a diligent linguist and student, and an adventurous slashing critic, and that he be acceptable to the government. The class of theological students from whom appointments theological professorships most naturally are taken, does not pretend in any way more spiritual-minded than the body of university students. To require a credible profession of regeneration in spiritual life as a prerequisite for joining a theological school or for receiving ordination in a parish even, would excite in Germany nothing but astonishment. It would be hard to tell whether the feeling of absurdity or of resentment would be the most prominent in the German mind at this demand. It is not meant that none of this class of students are devout, praying men. There are doubtless easy cases of true piety. But no such profession or quality is ever demanded. Certainly there exists between the mass of students of divinity and others no marked distinction of manners, morals, church attendance, or habits of devotion. Church historians note know that the theory of Spinner and Franke was denounced by the general mind of Lutheran Germany and dubbed by the nickname of Pietism. But that theory was, in the main, embraced by evangelical Christians in America as almost a self-evident truth. It is, at least, an accepted axiom that the pastor, and especially the teacher of pastors, must be a man who has spiritual experience of the truth. Hence, the American evangelical Christian must be reminded of the large abatement to be made in estimating the weight to be attached to much of the German theology. To our people, to tell our people that an author is a theological professor is virtually to say that he is not only living a living experiential Christian, but that he is supposed to be an eminent one. His opinions are the subject almost of religious reverence. At least he has the credit for most thorough earnestness and sincerity in his teaching. 
It is supposed, as of course, that his declarations are made with all the solemn intent proper to one who believes himself dealing with the interests of immortal souls. It is hard for our people practically to feel that a man so trusted in the holiest things may be dealing with the sacred text in precisely the same spirit as that in which he would criticize a saga or the Anacreontic Code. To appreciate the matter aright, they should represent to themselves a Bancroft or an Emerson, which aims, perhaps very genteel and scholarly, but wholly non-religious and unspiritual, criticizing the authorship of Ossian or Junius' letters. Now the Apostle Paul has passed his verdict on such men, Christ crucified to the Greeks' foolishness, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all, judgeth all things. They have the understanding darkened by reason of hardening of their hearts. But the anointing which ye believers have received of him abideth in you, says the Apostle John. And ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. He that believeth hath the witness in himself. Unless we are prepared to contradict God's holy word, we must ascribe to the unregenerate critics, however learned this consequence, that their carnal state must cause them to dislike and misconceive true godliness and salvation by grace. Such a judgment they will, of course, disclaim and resent. They will flout the pretensions of spiritual discernment, which the, spirit, which the children of grace derive through sanctification from the Holy Spirit, as Boetian, or as a fanatical, or as a cheap and vulgar mode of asserting one's intellectual and literary aristocracy, without paying for it the price of that diligent learning which they arrogate. Paul or John speak truth, it is, of course, unavoidable that these men should answer the charges thus. The same blindness of heart which makes them un unconscious of the spiritual beauty of the gospel will, of course, make them unconscious of their prejudice. They are perfectly sincere in thinking themselves dispassionate. They are in a state analogous to that of the freezing man, who, because he is so chilled, as to no longer feel the cold, does not feel that he is, he is frostbitten. It is thus with the man who is so utterly possessed by a blinding prejudice against his neighbor that it is, for a time, simply impossible for him to take an equitable view of that neighbor's actions. This is the very time he protests that he is entirely dispassionate and is calmly condemning his neighbor from the simple force of truth and justice. It is obvious that if the Apostle's verdict be true, these worldly men will be unconscious, unconscious of its truth, and they cannot but resent the charge as unhandsome. But nonetheless, the Christian who does not wish to fly in the face of inspiration must make the charge. He makes it not because he is glad to insult anybody, especially any learned man, but because he dare not insult God by contradicting him. We will, while making it in this case, give these scholars all the credit we can for every excellence they claim. Hardiest manners, correct morals, shaming of course all mere pretenders to spirituality, 
diligence, minute learning, and even commendable intellectual honesty wherever the spiritual truth, which is the object of their unconscious prejudice, does not present itself. When it comes to handling the theme handling when it comes to the handling of the themes of redemption, there must be then a certain incompetency in spite of their learning. And if the apostles have not slandered the natural man, we must hold ourselves prepared to discount a large part of their conclusions. Third, the spiritual atmosphere which these scholars inhabit, moreover, must be judged by us extremely unfavorable to evangelical investigation, for several of our most firmly established convictions must be discarded by us. We have held it beyond a doubt influence of the doctrine of baptismal regeneration must be deadening and unwholesome. But the Lutheran divines now usually hold this with the tenacity proportioned to their professed orthodoxy. We have been taught to regard the sanctification of the Lord's Day as ordained by Ius Divinum, and to believe that God has thus enjoined it, because its right observance is essential to the healthy culture of the soul. Well, Lutheranism, Lutheranism believes that all the sacred days of divine authority are as utterly abrogated as the new moon sacrifices, that to sabotage is to Judaize, and Lutheranism very diligently shows its faith by its works. Take this example from Luther's Table Talk, quote, If anywhere the day is made holy for the mere day's sake, if anywhere anyone sets up its observance on a Jewish foundation, and I order you to work on it, to ride on it, to dance on it, to feast on it, and to do anything that shall remove this encroachment on Christian liberty. Unquote. When their holy when their holiest man can so insolently reject God's ordinance, the common sense of the reader must suggest how how much improvement is like to be made of the Lord's day by average Lutherans. The evangelical Christian accordingly recognizes the spiritual atmosphere of these great centers of learning as fearfully cold. One index of this is that American students of divinity around them, although sufficiently masters of the language to attend German lectures, feel themselves, feel themselves instinctively drawn to set up separate preaching. Devotional meetings are rare. Sunday is, to most, merely a holiday. The average university student is, hard, is heard to boast not seldom that he has not entered a church for a year and hope, hopes not to do so until his marriage, when he will have to enter it once more. But he is nonetheless a baptized and confirmed member of the Lutheran Church. The state of church attendance tells the whole story as to the spiritual atmosphere. Berlin now has more than 1,100,000 people has about 32 Protestant places of worship, of which are very small, and scarcely any have a full attendance. Gothenburg, a little city of 20,000. Its university has about 70 professors and 1,000 students. In the whole town and university are four places of Protestant worships, two of which are small. The university church has one sermon a fortnight during sessions. On a good day, one may see there from 15 to 25 young men 
who may pass for students, or may be in part Gentiles merchants clerks. The theological department counts from 80 to 100 students. Where are these on Sunday morning? Quote, in the Grand Duchy of Mecklenburg, an inquiry was made in 1854 into the condition of the Lutheran Church, and it was found that no service had been held in the head churches for 228 times because there had been no congregations. Unquote. No one has drawn this picture in the darker colors than the evangelical divine Christlib of Bonn. He says, quote, There are large parishes in Berlin and Hamburg where, according to recent statistics, only from 1-2% to 2 of the population are regular churchgoers. Elsewhere, it is somewhat better. But speaking of Germany in general, we may say that in the larger towns, the proportion seldom exceeds 9 or 10%, and in the majority of cases, it is far lower." Unquote. In fact, the general aspect of Protestant Germany on the Lord's Day is prevalently that of civilized pagan country like China. The bulk of the population does not enter God's house, but does go to places of amusement. The only marked religious activity in the larger part of Germany, there are happy oases of spiritual fruitfulness like Elderfield, are among the Papists. Their churches are thronged. During the hours of Mass, the worshippers remind one of busy swarm of bees about their hive. The contrast is, to the Protestant, most mortifying. The inferences which the practical mind must draw from this picture are two. Spiritual atmosphere is not one of which we should expect evangelical flourish and views to flourish, and the fruits of German theological criticism in its own country are not such as to encourage its dominancy here. While German scholarship has been busy with its labors, it has suffered almost a whole nation to lapse into semi-heathenish condition. It has, it has had popery within it, the reach of its arm ever since the end of the Thirty Years' War, and has won nothing against it. Pride by its works, German divinity is found wanting. Fourth, the writings of the rationalistic school betray the spiritual blight in a defect which the living believer must ever regard as a cardinal one. This is the failure to appreciate and to weigh at all the class that class of internal evidences for the gospel and for the doctrines of grace which is presented in the correspondence between them and the experiences and convictions of the gracious soul. This is indeed the vital, the invaluable evidence. The class of criticisms alluded to know nothing of it. They dissect the evangelists, epistles, and prophets just as they do Homer or, Ve or the Vedas. They have never felt that declaration of our Savior, the words which I speak to you, they are spirit, they are life. The response which has been the response which is made by the profoundest intuitions of the human heart and conscience, quickened by the Spirit, to these lively oracles, immediately avouching them as words of the creator of the human soul, is unnoticed by these critics. They propose to settle the authenticity or falsehood of the records by antiquarian processes only, similar to those by the Niebuhr proposed to test the legends of early Rome, or Wolf 
to the genuineness of the Homeric epics. Fifth, the sober and practical mind finds the best argument of the real value of this species of discussion in its history. Let us glance over a small part of it. There was a time when Rosenmuller and Kunnel were ranked as marvels of critical acumen and learning. Now the mention of their special conclusions excites a smile and their works are obsolete. In the latter part of the last century, Simler led off what was then the new school of rationalism explaining everything in the sacred records which transcend human conception. Today, while there are plenty in Germany who hold to his skeptical results, none follow or believe in his criticism. He was the first professor of theology in and last head of the divinity school of Halle. Eichhorn was a famous professor of oriental languages and literature at Göttingen up to 1827. He also is a disbeliever in all the supernatural and explains all miracles in the Bible as natural events. The book of Isaiah he regarded as entirely inauthentic, the product of a plurality of writers put together at random. Iveta was a was theological professor in the University of Balza. He is usually regarded as the founder of the historico-critical school in Germany, which was, though less extreme than the Tübingen school, tinctured largely of rationalism. He does not believe that the Chronicles are scripture, or that the Apostle Paul wrote Ephesians or 1 Timothy. The latter he rejects because it has unpauline phrases and because it portrays a too advanced state of the Gnostic heresy for Paul's day, and a church government too mature. To these points, he has been utterly refuted by Bunsen's Hippolytus. Paulus, professor of theology at Heidelberg, 1811, was, was a thorough rationalist, who sat down to examine the Bible with the profound conviction that everything in it represented as supernatural was only natural or fabulous, and that true criticism consisted in endeavoring to prove this. Bauer was professor of Protestant theology at Tübingen from 1826 to 1860. He is usually regarded as the founder of the Tübingen School, which arrogates to itself the name of the critical. He has been both represented and contradicted by his students and successors, Volkmar, Keim, Heigenfeld, et al. Its principles may be said to be two. That nothing supernatural can ever have really occurred, and that the Christianity of the First Age was from the first divided by two hostile and contradictory schools, the Petrine and the Pauline. For this notable hypothesis, the only tangible pretext is the narrative of Galatians 2, 11-16. The advocates of the two doctrine had, he thinks, each their Gospels, compiled to suit their views, and the later Gospels, especially John's, were forged to smooth over this fatal breach and hush up the squabble long after the deaths of those men whose names they bear. Hence the source of material used for these pious frauds must, must be guessed. The guess of Bauer and Volkmar is that at first there was a brief writing of somebody, probably the evangelist Matthew, strictly Petrine, or Judaizing in tender. Somebody on the Pauline or liberal side got up a life of Christ in Luke's name, 
Of this, the Luke now in our Bibles is a later rehash and expansion. And somebody, to make weight against this fuller Luke, about A.D. 134, wrote the book which now passes by the name of Matthew. And after this, somebody forged the Gospel of Mark, as it now stands, in order to smooth over, smooth over this ugly Petrine and Pauline difference, and to give homogeneity to the Christian scheme. Then finally, in about 170 AD, still another forger wrote a gospel with the object of completing this amalgamation and affixed the, the Apostles John's name to it. But Bauer's people, Heigenfeld, proposes Matthew was completed first, then Mark, then Luke. Kostlin thinks that there was a first Mark, then Matthew, then another Mark, then Luke. Ewald, once at Tübingen, but later at Göttingen, teaches that there was, one, a Gospel of Philip, two, some Logia, or speeches of Jesus of unknown authorship, three, a short biography ascribed to Mark, four, an anonymous Gospel, five, the Matthew now in our Bibles, six, seven, and eight, three short writings of unknown authors detailing incidents of Christ's early years, of which there are no extant remains or proof, but of which Ewald speaks as confidently as though he would, as though he had them in his hand. But an anonymous critic of Tübingen school cuts the matter short. The quote-unquote anonymous Saxon concludes that the fourth gospel was the work of John, but that it is wholly unreliable and false. His theory compared with the learned Ewald's refreshing for its simplicity. It is that John did, this, did his own lying. Would the reader see a specimen of the criticism on which the date of John's gospel is settled by the school? Hilgenfeld argues that John omits circumstances that Simon the Cyrenian was impressed to bear the cross for the fainting Savior. The Synoptic Gospels narrate it, but Basilides, 2nd century, made a pretext of that narrative to support his Gnostic cro crochet that the person crucified was an ordinary Jew and not the Messiah. Therefore, John's Gospel was written after Basilides. If this is an argument, one might as easily prove that the Declaration of Independence was written after the 14th Amendment. But the admirable harmony of, these criticism, uh, of this criticism displays itself in the date that the school assigned for the forgery of John. Bauer is certain that it could not have been earlier than A.D. 160. Bunsen fatally refuted him in his Hippolytus. Zeller places it at 150, Helgenfeld at 130 to 140, Time at AD 130. More recent examinations of Luthart of Leipzig of the Orthodox school refute the whole of them and demonstrate the genuineness of the gospel as the work of the Apostle John in the first century. Bunsen even carries it up to an early, as early a date as AD 60 to 65. Schenkel, in his sketch of the life of Jesus, under, undertakes the construct, a biography of the Savior, wholly omitting the supernatural powers by the violent supposition that the Gospels were later works embodying a number of superstitious legends of the early Christians. But David Friedrich Strauss crowned his work by the life of Jesus, fashioned on the mythical hypothesis this learned professor of divinity studied for a time at Tübingen. He was elected divinity professor at Zurich, Switzerland, but by a friend, a, a popular and mute 
was prevented from taking his chair, though he continued for the rest of his life to draw a part of his salary. He married an actress from whom he was after divorced. The use he made of the leisure, the use he made of the leisure, subsidized by this Christian immunity, annuity, was to publish a second Life of Jesus, more anti-Christian than the first, and at last to carry his anti-supernatural position to its consistent extant, atheism. His last work adopts the evolutionism of Huxley and Heichel, denies the existence of the soul and God, and makes man a helpless subject of mechanical fate. The English reader may see a full, moderate, and intelligible account of these speculations in lectures 6, 7, and 8 of Christ Lib's modern doubt and Christian belief. Now, the purpose of this bird's eye view is not to attempt to a refutation in this place of any of these conclusions. The reader is only requested to note the following facts. Each of these mutually destructive speculations has been advanced by theologians. Each has had in Germany a large following and has claimed to be the final result of sound investigation. Each has been superseded in its turn, and while a virtually infidel result is still reached, the old methods are discarded for some newer hypothesis. None of them has been able to do what the old orthodox doctrine of inspiration has always done, retain the hearty and permanent confidence of a mass of Christians great in number, respectable in learning, and venerable in character. Another trait of this part of German theology is its submission to the sway of successive schools of philosophy. One century has witnessed the triumph of Kant's, of Schelling's, of Fichte's, of Hegel's system, and the death of all of them. Today, one must look out of Germany for learned Hegelians, the last of the schools mentioned. And the unorthodox philosophy of Germany today sways toward the opposite, the opposite extreme from idealism, that of materialism. But it has been the weakness of the popular German theologians to mold their creeds into, into the forms of these unsubstantial and fleeting philosophies. A Feuerbach, followed by Hegel, as he supposes, reduced God to the mere objectified reflex of his own consciousness. A pious and eloquent Schleiermacher imbues his whole system with idealistic pantheism. The unhealthiness of the theological atmosphere is revealed also in a way still more painful and significant by the foibles of the so-called Orthodox. What name is more venerated by Americans than that of the sainted Tholuk, the beloved theologian of Halle? But even he charges the Apostle Paul with making a false construction. He seems to confess that on Romans 9.17, he intimated that the Apostle had misrepresented Exodus 9.16, Septuagint, because he believed that he could, in that, he could in that way, better refute the Calvinistic view. Bollock's semi-Pelagianism and his utter unconsciousness of man's natural state of ungodliness and enmity to God seem to have perverted his view of the Epistle to the Romans. Again, the pious Neander seems to give the weight of his ascent to that deficient theory of inspiration, which makes it only an elevation of the prophet's own rational consciousness. A Bunsen declares with passion that the cloven tongues of fire at Pentecost 
were only lightning flashes from a thundercloud, and flouts the idea that the Twelve really spoke in unknown tongues. Meyer, the so-called conservative, the vaunted bulwark of orthodox side, began his career in Arian. He seems to have gotten no further than homoousianism, admitting that Christ has a nature like his father's. But he admits that his divinity would be proved by 1 Timothy 3.16, were the epistle only genuine. He teaches that man has two souls. He holds to the Gnostic doctrine that sin resides in the corporeal physical part of man's constitution and that the second is only trammeled by it like an unwilling but chained captive. His theology is distinctly semi-Pelagian. He declares that Paul borrowed the allegory of Hagar from the rabbins and holds that he was sin sincere but erroneous in thus arguing. If these things can be done in the green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Sixth, why is it that men of undoubted learning and diligence thus pursue speculations so convicted by the result of evanescence and futility? The more profound solution has doubtless been given in our picture of the state church and its results. Another solution is to be sought in the defects of the German system of university education. These are so great that, after conceding all the praise these universities deserve, we cannot but ascribe the main credit of German scholarship to the gymnasium. In the universities, there is no regimen exacting diligence in study. There is no roll call, and a student not even present his body with any punctuality in any lecture room. But if his body is there, absolutely no means are used to secure the exertion of his mind. University professor never asks questions, never holds any recitation. With the most of his students, he most probably never speaks one word on the subject he teaches, and many remain utterly ignorant whether the man before him is an idiot or is mentally rejecting every item of instruction he offers him. Unless the student is a candidate for a degree, he is not even examined at the end of the session or the course. The excuse for this fatal neglect is that the student has had enough of this species of drill in the gymnasia so that now it is sufficient for him to have the lecturer's example and guidance in the work of studying. But this, but this plea is wholly inadequate. The mere lecturer maintains only a one-sided relation to his pupils' minds. If they listen, they may learn his mind, but he never learns theirs. Every mind has its own idiosyncrasy, out of which arise its own peculiar weaknesses, wants, and misapprehensions. The experience of the writer as a teacher of Bachelor of Arts in studies properly postgraduate and of a university grade, who may presume to bring to their work at least, at, at least as much mental discipline as the lads from a German gymnasium, confirms this view. This experience proves that, lecture, that lectures without recitations would leave his students only half-taught. All but a few would carry away the queerest possible half-views and misconceptions of the doctrines enunced to them. The recitation, the personal dealing, the, de the detection of the individual's peculiarity, the testing and correcting of his, of his apprehensions of the ideas delivered to him are worth more than the lecture. 
Consequently, the one-sided instruction must result in a one-sided culture. It is not that the solution of this feature of the German mind that, while the memory is stored with such a multitude of facts, the logical power remains so inaccurate and the mind is so often a victim of its own hobbies. There is another feature which presents an instance of the law that human imperfection permits no good to exist without its evils, even as there can be no tree without its shadow. The great division of labor in German universities has been spoken of with its grand advantage of enabling scholars to pursue the minutiae of scholarship at their leisure, but hence result the known evils of specialism. Judicious medical men have recognized it. The specialist who devotes all of his mind to the study and medical treatment of a particular set of nerves acquires, of course, an amount of knowledge and dexterity about them beyond the attainment of its finest general practitioner. But unless the specialist is very wise, self-restrained man, he gains this at the expense of one-sidedness of mind. He becomes, he becomes overweening in his thinking. He makes his set of nerves his pet crochet. He exaggerates their influence until his judgment in pathology becomes weak and even absurd. Doubtless, there is too much specialism in German erudition, and hence, while, this, while the pursuit of particular branches is thorough beyond that of any other scholars, the views of truth are not well coordinated and the scientific judgment is infirm. There is reason to believe the overweening applause so long given to German scholarship has borne its natural fruit, undue inflation of the, of the applauded. It is not asserted that there are no men in their learned circles who pursue a cosmopolitan learning, but certainly the general result is that their scholars consider Germany sufficient unto herself. Their boast is that Germany is the schoolmistress of the world. They feel that they can give to all, but they have need to borrow of none. The best recent efforts of learning and study in other countries maintain or remain usually unnoticed by them and discount from their apprehension. Best recent efforts of learning and study in other countries remain usually unnoticed by them and discounted from their appreciation. A German theologian, for, for instance, when told that the American student, students are waiting with eagerness for the final work of Dr. Philip Dorner, complacently accepts it is perfectly natural and proper, as much so as that one should go to Newcastle for coals. But when one mentions the final work of the American Dorner, Dr. Charles Hodge, the exceedingly learned man who has read the Vedas and is deep in the latest Sanskrit and the most recondite German discussions of Egyptology knows nothing of Hodge. He feels that for him to read any other than German scholarship would be more like carrying coals to Newcastle. An exception to this contemptuous discounting of all the rest of the world exists in favor of a new of a few British and American authors. These are men who studied in Germany, who have continued their correspondence with German scholars, and who make a boast of retaining in those foreign lands the German methods. A few such scholars, 
Professor Max Mueller, Professor Robinson Smith, for instance, receive some recognition because in smiling on them, Germany is still, in a sense, exalting herself. Of the late Dr. J. Addison Alexander may be believed, there was still another exception to be noted in his day. In the last conversation the writer had with him, June 1856, the character of the English scholarship of the 17th and 18th century was mentioned, was at once thoroughly immodest and honest. The works of Prideaux, which mentioned as, were mentioned as fine specimens of historical research, exhaustive in their learning, and yet plain, perspicuous, and modest in their method. Dr. Alexander replied about in these words, Quote, I am extremely glad to hear you say so, because it is just my estimate of those scholars. And I will tell you what you, who are so much younger than I am, who have not been in Germany as I have been, are not in a position to know so well as I do. It is that these Germans, with all their affect affectations of ignoring, ignoring British learning, sometimes make a quiet use, nevertheless, of these old scholars, as convenient quarries to dig ready material out of, which they use without acknowledging. You have mentioned Purdue. Now it is singular that there is a late German work very pretentious on the part of the ancient church history, which has almost made its fortune out of plagiarisms from Purdue. This is given on the authority of Dr. Alexander Soli. Seventh, that the worst literary influence remains to be explained. As the German university is actually administered by its teachers, its quote-unquote final clause is not to communicate knowledge to pupils, but to manufacture professors. The professor does not lecture so much for the purpose of teaching the ascertained and recognized body of science. The student is presumed to have gotten that already, in the gymnasium, or by his own reading. The collection is rather designed to set him a pattern of the methods of new research in the outworks of the science. The aspirant is perpetually taught that to get in the line of promotion, he must do new work, which means that he must make some addition, not known before, to the science which he has adopted as his speciality. The test of ability is not the man's capacity to acquire an intelligent, per perspicuous knowledge of the science, however thorough and extensive, nor is it to be able to make useful application of the principles of the science already established for the benefit of mankind. Nor is it to be able to teach the whole known science effectively to other minds. All this is not enough. The aspirant must do new work. He must also evince independent powers of research or invention by extending his science in some quarter not explored before. However minute or merely curious or merely curious and trivial. Hence, do new work is a sort of shibboleth with them. The dissertation, which introduces the candidate to the privilege of an examination for an honorary degree, must profess to do new work. When the young aspirant has become a privat docent, his main hopes of promotion and a salary repose on him getting on his getting the name of having done new work. When he becomes at last the professor extraordinary, 
His prospect of elevation to the rank of full professor depends on his still doing new work. One peculiarity of the German university is that this professor extraordinary, or assistant professor, is not really the assistant of his senior, but his rival. He may have a miserable pittance of a salary, but he has the privilege of lecturing on any part of the course he pleases. On the very same parts his senior is lecturing on, at the same time, and instead of following, he may move abreast of or in advance of him. It is supposed that this license stimulates both senior and assistant, and keeps them both diligent and pushing. It certainly stimulates the assistant, for he is grasping up for his bread and butter. Hence it is not, hence it is not unknown that the superior shall lecture to six or seven students, and his assistant to forty or sixty. And the case is probably found to be this. The old superior professor is still delivering the same course which, 20 years before, made him Magnus Apollo in the university, and delivering it with all increased efficiency derived from experience in teaching and successive re-explorations of his ground, while his assistant is still doing new work. The senior has done his new work a few years ago. Probably it was really important work, constituting really grand extensions in the domain of his science. Possibly it was work so valuable that really left little except the gleanings of trifles in that sphere of science for those who came after him. But alas for this senior, there is no longer new work today. And his students pronounce that he is no longer fresh. They forsake him for his young aspiring assistant who is doing new work, the new work, namely, of whittling and polishing some new angle of the science which his senior has left in the rough and which is never going to be anything more than a curious triviality after it is polished. And the enthusiastic young gentlemen fancy that they are mastering the body of science because they are assisting so zealously in this polishing of the useless angle, when in fact what they need is to be studying the old work, which is not fresh, so as to ground themselves in the rudiments of their science. The consequences of this system are in part admirable. It begets in a numerous body of young aspirants a restless, if innovating, activity in research. The multitude of minds are pushing the outer boundaries of knowledge in every direction. In the physical sciences, which partake of the almost boundless variety of their subject nature, and in antiquarian researchers, where the documents were so numerous, this plan may work well. The young man, who would teach mineralogy or chemistry or botany or electricity, cannot indeed hope to add a single province to the domain of his science, like a Davy, a Franklin, or Linnaeus. But he may hope to construct some acid or neutral salt never combined before, and give it a learned name, or to detect, analyze, and classify a few weeds or mosses which the books had not yet before recorded. Nor should these minute industries of the scientific field be wholly despised, for it may be that in some future induction, which really leads to important truth, the little facts may bear a useful part. No one can predict. But obviously, the results of this system are far from healthy in the spheres of philosophy, and especially revealed theology. The facts and data with which the philosopher can properly deal are limited. They can properly include only those contents of consciousness which are common to, the saint, to sane men. That is all. 
Hence, when this imperious injunction is still imported into philosophy, what the aspirant in this branch of study must do new work, or else remain an underling, with no professorship, no honor, no fame, and very little bread and butter. He is placed under violently unhealthy influences. What can he do? He can only innovate. He can only attack existing doctrines. And if it happens that the existing doctrines were already settled right, he must unsettle them to get them wrong. Let us, let us suppose, for example, that the venerable Dr. Archibald Alexander, while teaching in Princeton that beautiful course of elementary ethics which is left to us in his little volume of moral science, was condemned, according to the German system, to have under him this professor assistant with the privilege, not the assisting, but of rivaling his senior with a, star a starveling salary of $250 per annum and a nice young lady in some New Jersey church betrothed to him some five or seven years ago with no chance of marriage under the present circumstances. This young gentleman is told that he is getting a full post and salary in some younger Western seminary, as the Allegheny or Chicago, depends on his doing new work in his department. It will not be enough for him, adopting the system of his venerable senior, to add some more research of diligence in illustrating it and successful perspicuity in teaching it. This is not really doing new work. It does not evince original, creative, philosophic talent. Let us suppose again that the ethical philosophy of Dr. Alexander is the true one. We now have precisely the German conditions. Unless the assistant professor is almost miraculously a saint, of course he gets a bee in his bonnet. He can only rise by differing substantively from his senior's philosophy. But that is the right philosophy. Then he must rise by inventing a false one, and by exert, exerting his learning and ingenuity to make the false one look like the truth. But it is when this law is virtually applied to the student of theology that it works in the most deadly mischief. Here, as we believe, is a divine science. The whole data are given to us in revelation and are therefore limited and definite in number and immutable because infallible in character. There can be but one right system. All others, so far as they vary from this, are wrong. There is indeed much scope for exegetical diligence, but this continued exegetical labor can never introduce substantial modification into a single essential member or relation of the system. It can only add the lesser. And as the industry proceeds, increasingly minute confirmations to the main results accepted from the first by true believers. Here is the vital distinction which is more and more overlooked in the days of pretended progress. And the proof of this justice is this, that the revealed code containing all these data of science, containing all these data of the science of redemption, was avowedly and expressly given by God to the common people, with the pledge that it was sufficient to give them infallible knowledge of salvation and the qualifications required for its right apprehensions were not any antiquarian learnings and sciences of criticism to be acquired in the future development of civilization, but an obedient heart and spiritual discernment given in, the, in answer to believing prayer. In short, that revealed theology cannot be a progressive science, is proved by this short argument. It was equally given by its author to save sinners of the first century of the Christian era and of the last. 
He declares that it saves by its truth and by the reception of its truth alone. If then the system by which we are to be saved in the last age is the result of a progression in science, it could not have been a system to save sinners in the first age. Hence, when the injunction to do new work is thrust upon the theologian, it is almost a direct incentive to heretical innovation. The animus which this trait of the German erudition has imported into theological study is poisonous to orthodoxy. It begets an endless and ever-restless spirit of innovation. To the current inquiring mind, the doctrines which are accepted and established are presumptively obnoxious because they are accepted. The Protestant principle is that nothing is to command our faith merely because supported by human prescription. Educated Germany is prone to push the truth to this extreme, that because a proposition happens to be supported by the prescription of the day, therefore it is, it is not to be believed. When the influence of this usage is properly appreciated, the American Christian becomes aware he has been under a species of hallucination in attaching any serious significance to the species of critical and theological speculations. Devout and evangelical men are among us are, of course, in dead earnest by handling the topic, topics of redemption. They believe that it is by these topics immortal souls are to live or perish forever. Through these topics, the holiest attributes of God and the most sacred compassions of the incarnate Savior receive their manifestation. We remember that there is an ever-present responsibility resting on all who touch them for the manner in which they handle them. Hence, it is hard for us to appreciate the footing which doctrines and facts concerning sacred writings hold in these minds as merely interesting antiquarian subjects for intellectual swordplay. The rationalists are, of course, not oblivious to the ephemeral life of the previous speculations of their comrades. They know that the usual term of their life is not more than a generation, and as all the previous ones have had their day and died, there is a tacit understanding that the ones they are studying will have the same fate. To the resident in Germany, there is, as men say, a feeling in the air that no one regards these critical theories as final. This admission betrays itself in a hundred hence. One inquires, for instance, whether the given man is a leading power in his department of literature. The answer is, oh, not now. He has been before the German public too long. Blank is now the coming man. Does no one ask why, if the writings of the first were true and just, that they should not continue to lead the mind of the country inasmuch as the truth is never old? The answer is a shrug and a remark. Why, his last great work has been out 20 years. The new contribution is recognized with favor, not as destined to establish final conclusions, but as furnishing, but as furnishing a new scholarly theme as credible to German erudition and as placing a literary comrade in the way of promotion. In a word, much of this writing is the literary student's duel. The young German of fashion is the model of military courtesy and a member of the fashionable university corps. He fights two to three duels per session with gentlemen of other corps, with whom he is not the shadow of a quarrel, and with whom he will be thoroughly warm and cordial at the next neighbor. He seeks to slash him with his sword and shed his blood, but in a mild way. Now should this antagonist take his discomfiture and pursue his quarrel after the fashion of the British or American duelist with real deadly intent, the men of fashion would view this as a clear proof of lack of breeding, almost a lack of civilization. 
So when German literati learn that we take their attacks on scripture and the doctrines of grace in the solemn way, they are affected with a somewhat similar dissentiment. They are affected with a somewhat similar sentiment. It's a combination of amuse amusement and disgust. Our making a life and death affair of them is an index of deficient culture, indeed of a state of very imperfect civilization. It proves that we have not experienced the liberalizing influences of letters which educated which educate men out of tolerance. It proves that we have not experienced the liberalizing influences of letters which educate a man out of intolerance. Had we the full German culture, we should be too courteous and tolerant to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. We should not allow a consideration so prosaic as that there is only one name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved, to obstruct the freedom of learned inquiry. Eighth, our indictment against the spirit of this theology, then, is that it tends to unsettle everything and settle nothing. It is a mistaken license of mind for liberty of mind. It claims the privilege of pursuing the Protestant freedom to prove all things and hold fast that which is good, but it perverts that right to the quet. <clears throat> but it perverts that right. But it perverts that right to a questioning of good things, which results in holding fast to nothing. It is said that a truly philosophic method is to question every position in our beliefs, and that it is a duty. It is said that the truly philosophic method is to question every position in our beliefs, and that this is a duty which one man cannot do for another more than he can eat and breathe for him, so that even the most fundamental and settled dictates of belief shall be held subject to debate by each newcomer. It is sneeringly asked, would you have the pastors of the church especially hold their creeds on ignorant prescription? Shall they preach dogmas as Bible truths only because a synod, professedly not inspired, said 300 years ago that the Bible taught them? We reply, of course not. But let it be supposed that possibly a synod was right, that the canonical scriptures are God's word, and that the creed formulated by the synod from them is the meaning of God in them. If, on one hand, to say so of this naughty thing, a synod, does not prove this true, neither does it prove it untrue. Suppose now, for argument's sake, a synod is true. How then will this universal right and duty of free inquiry combine with that fact in the results? This question reveals a touch of the shallow and impertinent sophism. Does this right of free inquiry take the form of a right to reject the truth, and on the ground that, that some good man before us, in the legitimate exercise of this same right, ascertain that truth for us? Hardly. In the case supposed, then, the individual right to free inquiry <clears throat> resolves itself simply into this, the right and duty of embracing heartily and intelligently the truths given to us. That is all. The philosophical assumption in the in, in the the philosophical assumption the philosophical assumption in this innovating criticism is that this individual right can only be fully exercised by differing from all previously uninspired results. But this would be true only in the supposition that all previous results must be erroneous, thus uninspired. If this were true, then all the exertions of the of these last uninspired critics are thereby shown to be thoroughly impertinent. How baseless the, the theory appears from a simple dilemma. 
Either this method of criticism and free speculation is not a method for the ascertainment of truth, or it is. If it is not, it is worthless, and the sooner we have done it, if it is not, it is worthless, and the sooner we have done with it, the better. If it is, then it leads to the, the permanent establishment of truth. Therefore, the Protestants who come after these critics can no longer exercise freedom of inquiry without claiming a license to criticize and reject truth. Any other science of ascertained truth may offer us good and sufficient instances. The teacher of geometry does not inhibit free thought. He does not teach the conclusions of his science by dictation, but he knows that the right exercise of free thought by his principles but he knows that the right exercise of free thought by his pupils will inevitably lead to their readoption of the same old theorems taught ever since Euclid. How is this? Because they are clearly true. Ah, but this is an exact science. A science of absolute truth, says one. Let another instance be taken, then. The German antiquary teaches his pupils that Dionysus, Paul's convert in Athens, did not write the Celestis Hierarchia. He by no means teaches this by mere dictation. He invites his pupil, he invites his pupils to the fullest freedom of inquiry, but he expects them inevitably to readopt his conclusion. But it is pleaded that the human mind is an imperfect instrument of cognition, and this imperfection cleaves in some degree to its most fundamental exercises. Hence it is argued that the only way to secure accurate knowledge is to hold all conclusions, even the foundation, even the foundation ones of the science studied, subject to re-examination and possible modification by every student. This conception implies by the only way to build the temple of truth. This, this conception implies that the only way to build the temple of truth securely is for each builder to relay for himself all the stones, including the foundation stones. Another proposition is far more certain, that if everybody is to be continually moving the bottom stones, no temple of truth can be built at all for anybody. Each builder should, indeed, acquaint himself intelligently with these foundation stones, as with all above them in the wall, but not for the purpose of moving them. He acquaints himself with them for the purpose of approving their position and satisfying himself they are in the right place. This overweening critical spirit overlooks an all-important truth, that the attainments of, of sound, healthy research are cumulative. The results of the mental labor of previous generations should count for something. Some things should get settled by the progress of knowledge. Truths, ascertained in one way, reflect their light of evidence on other truths, so that these latter become perfectly clear in their certainty, and are most thoroughly settled for the most enlightened and just-minded men. There is no theory which is really more dishonoring to the rights of the human intellect than this innovating criticism, for its tendency to mark all the efforts of men continually with, with practical futility. It seems to say that man's intelligence is never to attain conclusive results. If this were indeed so, we see, we see not how such a faculty is worthy of rights to any prerogative or any freedom. When we see the rationalistic theology and criticism then, perpetually announced, when we see the rationalistic theology and criticism then perpetually announcing new results, we ask, have any new important data been discovered, such as justifying the laying new the foundations? 
Have any more primitive documents been discovered? What are they? The Moabite stone, the Rosetta stone, the readings of the Egyptian monuments deduced therefrom, the cuneiform remains in Mesopotamia, the Sinai manuscripts, the Sinai manuscripts of the scriptures found by Tischendorf, the lost work of Hippolytus of Portus, if we may trust Bunsen. But every one of these is favorable and only favorable to the old conclusions as to the canon and text of scripture, so far as they touch the subject at all. Have any new lights of importance been thrown in? Have been thrown upon dates or the genuineness of patristic writings since the era of Cave, Bentley, and the other great critics who have settled the estimation of this literature? Have any testimonies as to the canon been unearthed more authoritative than those of Caius and Eusebius? None. The materials remain substantially as they were when the renewed and exhaustive research of a Hugh an Alexander and a Samson, made a final settlement for fair minds of the canon. But the new criticism goes on, shuffling its pack of cards over and over, without any ground, making its new deals of pretended conclusions, which have nearly as much fortuity and as little authority as the deals of the fortune teller's cards. But it's claimed that, though the materials remain substantially the same, the advance of philology has given a new apparatus of exposition and the methods of the new criticism place the data in new lights. No one can be readier than the writer to recognize every collateral ray of light thrown on exegesis by philology with gratitude. But the recent beams are, compared with the great flood thrown by the reformed exegetes of the previous ages, slender sidelights, and, and they are in the main conformatory of the old orthodox methods and conclusions. To say that modern philology has furnished any grounds for revolutionizing exegesis is simply a boastful misrepresentation. Let Viner be taken as the most illustrious example. His rationalism was probably so entire as to create for him the conditions of a complete grammatical equity and, per and impartiality by means of his very indifference to the doctrines extracted from the text. It made no difference to his prejudices or feelings whether scripture were so interpreted as to teach Calvinism or semi-Pelagianism, since to him they were no inspired authority for anything. Hence he could investigate their grammatical laws with the same equanimity as those of Tertius and Pindar. What has been the result? That the principles of his grammatical constructions give the same conclusions and exegesis reached in Calvin's. In the minuter details and accomplishments of his exegesis, he completes Calvin's exegetical results. In a few cases, he differs from him, usually not for the better. As for the methods of the new internal criticism, we meet the claim by direct denial of their correctness. By their fruits ye shall know them. Their most pungent condemnation from their clashing results in the hands of their own advocates. On such critical premises, an ingenious man might might prove almost anything about any authentic writing. A much more plausible argument could be made to prove that the history of the first Napoleon is mythical than that the Gospels of Jesus are mythical. One maxim of the common sense of mankind contains a refutation of the most of these criticisms. Truth is often stranger than fiction. Only one of these so-called critical principles, one now exceedingly unfashionable, will be mentioned in the conclusion. Protestant expositors have always admitted the utility of learning all that is possible of the personality of the human penman of the inspired document of his times, education, opinions, modes of thought, idiosyncrasies of language, and nationality. Why? 
because it's possible that any of these, when authentically known, may throw a sidelight, usually a dim one, on the interpretation of his words. But now this obviously old admission is, is travestied and reappeared in this form, that the human author's ascertained doctrinal standpoint is to dictate our construction of his inspired writing. And this sometime, and this sometimes when the doctrinal standpoint is the one he held before his conversion to the gospel. Clearly, this principle begs the whole question of that writer's inspiration on the orthodox theory of inspiration that the Holy Spirit, using the man as his amanuensis, did not express the human element of thought and style, but directed it infallibly to the giving of the form of expression designed by God for the composition. The penman's personal thoughts would naturally appear in the verbal medium of divine thought. But even then, they would not be allowed to vitiate the perfect truth of that thought. But to say that the propositions themselves were the result of the human writer's education and opinions is simply to say that he had no inspiration. If the sacred writers claimed inspiration and sufficiently attested to the truth of the claim, then this theory of exposition is not. Thanks for listening to this reading of Robert Louis Dabney's essay on the influence of the German university system on theological literature. Hopefully this has been helpful and edifying to you. If you'd like to contact us, please reach out to us on gab at Dixiepolis Podcast or by email at dixiepolis at protonmail.com. God bless.